welcome back to Model Student. I am quite excited about this episode because, as the title suggests, we will be talking about um, one of the, well, not one of the, the first black um, supermodel who is often forgotten, and her legacy, I feel like, isn't commonly acknowledged. And so, I thought to kick off... Um, a series that I'll be doing on Model Student, which is Fashion History 101. What better way to start off than with this? Um, so when I think of supermodels, I often think of, you know, Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss. But prior to Campbell, Moss, and the roundup of nepotism models, there was Donia Luna, the first black supermodel. But prior to Donia Luna, there was Peggy Ann Freeman. Peggy Ann Freeman and Donia Luna are the same just as Peter Parker and Spider-Man are the same. Do you get what I mean? Let's start from the beginning, shall we? In 1954, Peggy Ann Freeman was born in Detroit. Peggy was the middle daughter of three. Her father was employed in, a manufa- in manufacturing, and her mother worked as a secretary for the Young Women's Christian Association. Her life was centered around church, school, and productions of local theater. Until 1963. It was a proper sliding doors moment, when one moment has the possibility to redirect one's lives. In 1963, David McGabb was in Detroit for a work assignment. Allow me to introduce David, the British photographer. He studied graphic design and photography in England. In 1963, he moved to New York. He continued to study and work as an assistant. Within due time, he received his first assignment with Condé Nast in 1963. I'm unsure if this assignment is the same uh, as the same aforementioned one that he was visiting Detroit for. We'll get to why his time in Detroit was significant in just a moment, but I just want to share what the projection of his career was. McGabe's work reached the glossy pages of various publications such as Life, Harper's Bazaar, W, French L, French Vogue, London Times, and so on. He passed away in March of 2021. All of this is to say, by the end of his career and life, he was no joke. Back to 1963. McCabe was on a photography assignment when, voila, outside of the city's famous Fisher building, he noticed Peggy on her way to a rehearsal. She was dressed in her plaid and plain Catholic school uniform, yet McCabe was, in his own words, stunned. He recalls she was so tall and so slender and had the most incredible bone structure. Historically, those features have been the prerequisite for a modeling career, so, with no surprise, McGabe was inspired and compelled to let Peggy know if such a career ever interested her, she should come to Manhattan and he would help her. It goes without saying, hearing you should model is flattering regardless of who it comes from. However, it is especially significant coming from a photographer who is known for working with celebrities like Twiggy and Andy Warhol. McGabe recognized that Peggy, soon to be Donia Luna, had something special. Miles away from Detroit, the March on Washington happened the same year. It isn't exactly noted what month McGabe and Donia Luna had their interaction, but the March on Washington happened on August 28, 1963. It was on that day that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his iconic I Have a Dream speech, and 200,000 people marched to advocate for the civil and economic equality of black people. I bring up the March on Washington because I believe it's important to understand what was happening culturally at that time. Prior to 1963, there wasn't a black supermodel in the mainstream spotlight. At that time, there were no black supermodels walking runways. Black people had been dehumanized, evident through slavery and segregation, and within the fashion industry, there was not yet a space for them. 
Donia Luna arguably helped carve that space, along with all of the other human rights activists who were protesting, although the two parties didn't necessarily interact. A year later, in autumn of 1964, the Civil Rights Act passed and Donia Luna moved to New York. Donia Luna's daughter states, I'm still amazed at how brave my mother was to leave home for Manhattan at that point in history, with no clear pans, plans or steady income, just a telephone number hastily written down by a stranger. As a girl of color at that time, simply believing in her own worth and following her true calling were great revolutionary acts. Brave and certain Donia Luna was, confident too. She wrote a letter to a friend declaring, I'll be on top of the world if it takes every breath I have, every muscle of my body. I feel it. I know it. I'll be some kind of star real soon. Real soon. Her predictions and hopes came true. Within a few months of her move to the big city, Luna was contracted to work with Richard Avedon. Richard was an American fashion and portrait photographer known for his work at Harper's Bazaar and Vogue. His first pictures of the model debuted in a groundbreaking six-page feature in the April of 1965 edition of the magazine. Donia Luna was soon declared the first black star model by newspapers across the counter. She surrounded herself with other stars too, joining the late-night Motown parties hosted by Sammy Davis Jr., attending dinner parties by Miles Davis, dancing with other models. Her daughter beautifully describes, I can simultaneously feel how clearly she belonged there and how ahead of her time she was. Come spring of 1965, Donia Luna was undoubtedly growing her stardom. She was one of the only black girls to be a part of Andy Warhol's factory, captured by his Polaroids and 16mm screen tests. She was not only a vision, but a visionary to Warhol. She contributed to his film camp, which was satire, and she was certainly a trusted muse. As Donia Luna's career grew, so did the civil rights movement. Parallel to this, society's fascination, or perhaps fetishization, of the quote exotic and alien also gained pace. It's phenomenal that Donia Luna had the opportunities that so many other people of color were denied. Some people wish she could become the face or the symbol of the African-American resistance. However, this was a rule that she struggled with, if not outwardly denied, as someone who identified as mixed race. The way she described her ethnic background varied depending on the audience. During a 1968 interview with the New York Times, she emphasized her non-black ancestry. After the interviewer asked if claiming to be a quarter black during the civil rights era was a bit like someone claiming to be a quarter Jewish in Nazi Germany, Luna replied, that's America's problem. At first, that may seem like a harsh response. However, her husband later revealed that Luna felt rejected by the black community and the white one. And although the work she was given seems glamorous, she could never quite escape prejudice or expectations. She was being championed, but still had to deal with the obvious and harsh racism that thrived at the time. Her career in the United States was at the mercy of the economic interest of others, and she wasn't always graced with the audience who saw her for the star that she was. Avedon's photographs of Donia Luna and Bazaar had triggered advertisers in the southern states to pull their advertising, while readers canceled subscriptions. More so, William Rodolph Hearst, the owner of Bazaar, did not approve. I was never permitted to photograph her. Luna for publication again, the photographer later admitted. And so in December of 1965, Donia Luna moved to London. Arguably her first real break arrived after the move. 
In March of 1966, she became the first model of color to be on the cover of British Vogue. Shot by David Bailey, Donya Luna wore a Chloe dress and dramatic Mimi D in gold earrings. The editor, Beatrix Miller, commented, She happens to be a marvelous shape, angular and immensely tall and strange. She has a kind of bite and a personality. That same year, Time announced 1966, the Luna year. The magazine wrote, She is a creature of contrast, one minute sophisticated, the next fawn-like, now exotic and far away, not a gammon from around the corner. Beyond the magazine prints, Donya Luna had an unbeatable energy on the runway. Her essence is described as crawling like a lion, grooving to the music, or suddenly freezing and making direct eye contact with journalists. It was a historic moment for the fashion industry. Journalist Bill Cunningham wrote, Her body moves like a panther, her arms the wings of an exotic bird. The audience responds with shattering applause for the model's performance rather than the designer's clothes. It is the birth of a new fashion era, that of a spectacular show that rivals any on Broadway. The attention she was receiving was certainly earned and generally overwhelmingly positive. However, I do find it particularly interesting that the commentary surrounding Donya Luna is centered around an exotic theme. She's described as a creature, an animal. I wonder if it's because her movement emulated those qualities, because at face value that's what the implication is, or rather if she was automatically and subconsciously placed in the category of other. I'm curious how many white models of that time were described as exotic and animal-like. Exotic, at least in my experience of the word, is dehumanizing and I'd argue a microaggression. That label has only ever been given to me by a white counterpart. When I first met with the modeling scout, she assured me, you have an exotic look and that's really in right now. I've always found that strange, that my biracial identity could be simplified to a trend cycle. You have an exotic look and that's really in right now implies that my space in the industry is temporary depending on what company needs their token woman of color. Beyond myself, the space for women of color in the modeling industry is still not what it should be. As recently as last year, 2020, Vogue amplified the voices of models of color talking about their experience with racism in the industry. So for now, I digress. We can continue the discussion in another episode. For now... We'll return back to Donya Luna. And it actually, we have very little left because in 1979, at the height of her career, she tragically passed. Her daughter reflects that she was dynamic and creative to the end, vibrant, present, and totally connected to life. Brilliantly, her daughter wishes, I hope that the world is finally ready to celebrate a young African-American girl from Detroit who didn't let others define her. That's all for Fashion History 101, quite an abrupt ending, um, but I do think it's a story worth telling and also remembering. So I hope, echoing her daughter, that when we talk about legendary supermodels like the 90s girls or the models of today's time, we can also honor Donya Luna, the forgotten supermodel. (laughs) 